Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good friend, Lynn Alden, and we are going to dive into the depths of the monetary system. It's going to be a very fun conversation. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Glad to have you back. Happy to be here. Always happy to come. All right. Now, you did a, an interview the other day with Snyder and Peter McCormick, and the very first question, I think it was a great interview. But I think it got the interview off on the wrong foot because there's so many different definitions. So I think the first question was, does the Fed print money? And I, I think you got to get a little more granular than that, because that can mean just an infinite number of things. But I think what most people really want to know is, does the Fed's balance sheet or how does the Fed's balance sheet actually impact M2? Because, you know, when you're talking about printing money, what most people are trying to determine is if that's going to impact consumer prices. And so we know that the amount of currency units that are chasing goods and services, you, know, you can kind of say that's M2. I mean, I would take it down for checking and savings because of high velocity money, and low velocity. But overall, I think the normie is just when they hear money printing or does the Fed's balance sheet increase, does that mean it's money printing? They're really looking at it in terms of how M2 goes up or down. Do you think that's accurate to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's also going to, at the end of the day, affect what prices do. So the, the base money, as that changes, that has various implications for other parts of the monetary stack. But at the end of the day, the amount of money in our account determines you know, what kind of spending power we have. Uh, and so at the end of the day, that, that, that transmission from base money changes to broad money changes, if any, uh, I, I think is a, the, the key thing that people want to know at the end of the day. Yeah. And and I think one of the um, the confusing parts over this past, you know, this call since the global financial crisis that has uh, thrown a lot of people off is that they assume money printing must be inflationary. Uh, whereas another way of looking at it is that it can be anti-deflationary. Right. That you that you don't. So you have to you don't assume that the base case is like roughly zero inflation. Uh, you might assume the base case is deflation in a certain type of environment, like a big debt bubble going off. And when you expand the, the monetary base, you you set off a series of changes that prevent that deflation from happening, which is, you know, it's another type of inflation, but it's not something we would, we would generally think of as inflation. Yeah. So to give a good example, let's say you've got Wells Fargo and they have, uh, let's just say $5 trillion in deposits. So those deposits are liability of Wells Fargo. If Wells Fargo goes bust, the money supply M2 goes down by $5 trillion. So if the Fed steps in and bails out Wells Fargo, it might not increase the overall M2 money supply, but it'll prevent it from going down by $5 trillion. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's what we saw during the Great Depression. So we saw that in 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 force. And generally what these environments shared is that, you know, leading up to the Great Depression and leading up to 2008, you had a situation where the um the multipliers were very significant, meaning that the the number of deposits uh that a bank had that they, you know, they owed liabilities in compared to how much base cash they had was very wide. Um and also, but how are you measuring that cash? Uh, different ways. You can either look at uh, just deposits in the system compared to the monetary base, or you can look at um, deposits in the system compared to the amount of money that, that banks list as cash, which is either vault cash or bank reserves. 
Um, and so yeah, but before, I think there's more cash than that. Like what other cash types are you considering? I think there's off balance sheet cash that's just interbank lending. Well, there, that's another type. And interbank lending went down quite a bit uh, after the global financial crisis because right. so what what they did back then, I wouldn't consider that a type of cash. That's a it's a type of interbank liquidity. And so one thing that that these environments had in common is that the system became so leveraged but so efficient so that very little base money could move around super quickly. Whenever a bank had any sort of liquidity problem, they could just they could just borrow from another bank. Um, and you never really had you never have like a, a system wide withdrawal or or to the extent that you do it super rare. Like it's it's very rare that a hundred million people want to go and pull out ten percent of their cash in the form of banknotes, right? That's a that's a very statistically unusual phenomenon, usually associated with crisis. So normally what you have is banks, you know, one one bank might have a little bit of a liquidity squeeze, so it borrows from another bank that's not having a liquidity squeeze, and you have this kind of game of musical chairs going on where you're supporting a very large deposit base that all these people think that's their cash. You know, they look at their account, they say, I got 50,000 in the bank, whatever the case may be. And that bank might have a trillion dollars in deposits, but only has 50 billion in what, what they would have as cash. And any sort of other quick transfers, they would need to quickly borrow from another bank or, or use, use various operations to meet that. And I think one, one uh, just to finish up that point, I think the foundation at the end of the day is if you're on if you're on like an older money standard where say the money's gold, right? If if something unravels this big debt environment, um, you can't print more gold. So you, you're going to have some sort of peg break. You're going to have some sort of deflation, either deflationary collapse or peg break. It, it, it's kind of you, your options start to condense down. Whereas what makes this money printing essentially is that that now authorities have flexibility over the monetary base. So they, the third option is just basically instead of a peg break, they they can maintain those claims because they increase the monetary base and they make banks less reliant on their bank lending. But then it kind of retroactively makes all of their deposit growth and their fractional reserve banking. It kind of solidifies that. It says that is now you know we've given the choice between M two starting to collapse down closer to the monetary base or the monetary base expanding upward to meet M two. They basically say that we will always err on the side of you know, the monetary base expanding upwards to to make most M2 money good. Yeah, I think it's a bailout, but I don't know that it's a bailout because there's a lack of reserves or a, a lack of liquidity. I think it stems maybe from, it could be either or, but I think it stems from bad lending. You know, if it, I mean, if you think back to the GFC, and it is true that additional reserves kind of papered over the problem. That, that's unequivocally a, a fact. But was the real problem a lack of reserves or was the real problem just a bunch of real bad loans? You know, I guess that there's an argument there saying that if you made a bunch of bad loans, but if you had far more reserves in the system, then that wouldn't have been the problem. But it, it, it's trying to get at the, the symptom or the cause, you know what I mean? So I think it's, so at, at the end of the day, when you, you can look at like a stable system or an unstable system. So for example, stable system is like a chair sitting there. It's got four legs, it's just stable. Whereas a bicycle, it only works while it's in motion. Otherwise, it falls over, right? So that's an unstable system. It has to keep going to to not fall apart. Same thing for like, you know, the, I don't know if it's biologically true, but like a shark has to keep swimming. Otherwise, it drowns. Um, yeah, or, that's just one of those or, things that's said so many times. Yeah, I assume it's true, true but I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> yeah. or, or a game of musical chairs. Imagine if you had like, you know, 30 kids and five chairs. Uh, as long as the music's going, it doesn't. you can have one chair. It doesn't matter. Uh, 
the the but when the music stops, the ratio of kids to chairs becomes a lot more important. And so, what you generally have in these crisis environments is that you have an inherently unstable system. Like you know, basically that no more than five percent of people could want to withdraw cash at once because just there's really not the base cash isn't there. There's only so much base cash. Um, but but that's and, only but that's based on counterparty risk. Yeah. So if there's but, enough, if, if the counterparty risk is low, there's infinite chairs. Well, not at once though. That's the thing because you yeah. can't. You, no, there is because because assuming that there's let's just assume there's zero risk, right? Then the banks are going to be able to get liquidity from any other bank they want because the bank's balance sheet is pretty much infinite. Well, any one bank can get liquidity from other banks, right? But if the if the whole system if those whole systems only lever so that there's there's you know basically like back in the in two thousand eight there were like twenty three deposits for every one dollar in what banks called their their cash which is like vault cash combined with some reserves now if any one bank let's say one bank had 20 percent of deposits want to come out of it in one day for some reason maybe they have a really big concentrated depositor uh that bank could meet that no problem by going over to wells fargo and saying hey you know we just got to meet this like liquidity requirement um but if the whole banking system were to one seize up so they can't you know they don't trust each other anymore uh, and but that's an increase in counterparty risk. Yes, because but the reason it happens is because they realize like that the money's not actually there, or at least most of the money's not actually there. So if the music stops, and if say ten percent of the whole deposit base shows up and says, "Oh, okay, I want my dollars right now," there's literally one is there's not even enough printed dollars, and two, even if you include reserves and things like that, there's literally there's just there's not that many base dollars and so right but back to 2007 because i don't know that in 2007 the issue was depositors going to the bank and wanting green pieces of paper you know it's it's the fact that they had to take a haircut on the asset side of their balance sheet so they just didn't have that liquidity because counterparty risk was so high but using your analogy of musical chairs if we would not have had those bad loans you know the, the bad mortgages then there would have been infinite shares because if they had a depositor that wanted to transfer their commercial bank liabilities to another commercial bank or even outside you know, the United States, they could have easily done that because they could have borrowed and got the liquidity they needed. Uh, again, I, the way I look at it is just it, it's a symptom of counterparty risk instead of a symptom of not enough reserves. Although, Although, to your point, if there would have been a lot more reserves... Uh, then there, then there would not have been as much counterparty risk. Well, yeah, because I mean, you can you. I think the extremes help justify or help explain the averages. So, for example, if you had a, a, a situation where every bank had eighty percent of its deposits backed up by just cash in the vault, for example, right, right. Uh, you know, that's a very stable system. Uh, there's very little deposit risk uh, that's possible. Even even if all banks were just not trust each other anymore, the the total losses would be pretty small. Whereas it, if you have a banking system where they collectively have 5% of deposits on hand in cash, that's a, it, it's a, it's a system that requires that constant velocity, that constant, you always have to keep shuffling things around to meet whatever liquidity is being pulled in the system. And you can't really, you can't really deal with the system wide liquidity pull. And one thing that we see in general, um, is, you know, it's funny, they, they were having this kind of same discussion back in like the 1870s, um, like William Stanley Jevons, if you read, um, uh, he he post he published a book in like 1875, and this was pretty recently after the um, widespread usage of uh, telegraph, right? So the telegraph was deployed in the like the 1850s and 60s, and like in the Europe, 
between all the different countries. And then the first transatlantic one right. was, uh, I think, 1866 or like late 1860s. So by the time you get the, you know, the 1870s, they're starting to really kind of use this ability to transfer money super quickly. Um, and there's still obviously a lot of paper usage, but the combination of paper and, and telegraph was making it very efficient. Mm-hmm. And so this economist and logician was was documenting it at the time in his book. And he was, on one hand, he was super excited about it. So he's describing how the more, it's like, we're getting so efficient at this. Claims claims for gold can move around so efficiently that you barely even need metal, right? Every once in a while, there's like a slight settlement that, you know, is some sort of like persistent trade surplus that you got to be able to move a little bit of gold. But for, for the most part, we don't even need metal anymore. It's just so efficient. On the other hand, he's like, we can't forget that all of these are claims for gold. And like, you know, right now, as it stands, he's writing this in like 1875. He's like, right now, uh, if 5% of people show up in banking hours and ask for their gold, there's not there's not enough gold. There's only about five percent of, of supposed claims for gold met by gold. And he's like, so you have to be careful. And of course, we know that ran into a truck in World War One when the, that was kind of the music stopped. And there's only so much gold, and there's just a radically increased number of claims for gold. And mm-hmm. the similar situation happened in the 1920s U.S., where uh, you know we managed to get through World War One, but then in that build up to the Great Depression. If you just look at how much debt was in the system or how much deposits in the system compared to the relatively small monetary base, and even the monetary base was only partially backed by gold, um, you had this, like, the the, the stack was just so layered uh, that it, it kind of had to keep going. And if you get a, a thing where asset prices fall and banks don't trust each other, uh, that, like, that starts collapsing down to the monetary base pretty quickly because all that velocity just dries up. And it's not so much that that, so that, only gets triggered by that counterparty risk question. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Basically, what I'm saying, it was only, it's only so vulnerable to counterparty risk because of how highly levered it was able to get. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. It's just, it, I always think, I think we discussed this one time, I just try to think of it in terms of a broken engine that's, uh, and we all had them as teenagers, right, or, or in our 20s when we were all broke, that uh, consumed a lot of oil. I remember one time I had a truck that you had to put a quart of oil in it every time that you filled up with gas. And so is, is the problem that the truck's low on oil <laughs> or, or is the problem that the engine is consuming so much oil? And that's what, you know, you just try to think through. But the, the, the reason I try to really get into nuance there is because I try to get people to realize that if the banks want to, they can provide liquidity. They can create the dollars needed. They can create the cash. They can do all these things regardless of how many bank reserves are in the system. Uh, but to your point, that's going to depend on that counterparty risk. And if the system is over levered, there's going to be more counterparty risk and you increase the probability that the Fed is going to have to come in and bail them out. But again, my point is I just want people to realize that banks, if they want to, they want to. If the risk reward makes sense, they can create those currency units. They can create that cash. They can create that liquidity. Yeah. And I think, I mean, subject to certain, sometimes they're in environments where they have liquidity requirements like regulations or capital requirements, things like that. So up to a certain point. Um, but then even if, even without those things, the problem is if you're running a bank um, and you're a bank CEO and you want to run your operations such that you know, it doesn't, it's not like someone sneezes on your bank and your bank falls apart, right? You, if 
if you can't go one day without like access to other banks liquidity then you're 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 probably in trouble right so it it you can always in a in a highly velocity functioning environment you can always paper over any sort of liquidity demand that happens um but in that levered state it's like you there's a lot of imprudence in banks letting themselves get to that point where they say you know we only have let's say 3% of of the you know, reserves on hand right. to meet dollar requirements. And if more than 3% want their money back or, or even transferred another bank or taken out physically, if any more than 3% come, we have to, we have to rely on like the kindness of strangers, like other banks, uh, yeah. our competitors, ironically, uh, to have us not die tomorrow if this happens. Yeah. So, and whereas if you have 20% reserves X, you know, whatever the number, higher number is, you have a much bigger buffer that supports your, basically your, your, you know, you, they're kind of inherently they're double counting because they're saying that hey, you can always get back this whenever you want, even though we don't have it, but we'll get it if you need it. And you're you're double counting claims, which works until it doesn't. Yeah, I think the real problem there, in my view, are the bailouts. So if you didn't have the bailouts, if the banks didn't think in- implicitly or maybe even explicitly that if they're large enough, you know, the the Fed is going to come in and and create that base money, like you said, uh, to bail them out, then I think we'd have a lot fewer banks that were levered to the hilt. I think there'd be a, a, a lot more prudence uh, to your point. So for me, that's really kind of the place to start is the government interfering with the free market. And even going back to your example there in the 1870s uh, with that gentleman's book, you know, it was true. You had banks go bust, uh, but they deserved to go bust because they took too much risk and they didn't have enough gold on hand. And, you know, at some point people show up and they want their gold and they don't have it. You get a bank run, uh, but they didn't get bailed out. They went bust. So that sends a message to the other banks in the 1800s that, hey, you know, there's no one, there's no Federal Reserve. Uh, there's no government to come and step in to save the day. So I need to be prudent or even more prudent uh, with my balance sheet. And then at that point in time, you know, the depositors take a haircut as well. Uh, so then they're much more careful uh, where they're putting their money. Instead of today, you know, we have the complete opposite, not just with the banks, but the depositors as well. Yeah, I think in an environment where either you can't or won't change the base money, um, then what you get is instead, anytime there's over-levered IOUs and there's such a weakness emerge, uh, the number of IOUs will collapse, you know, not all the way, but closer to some by some direction towards the base money rather than the base money expanding upwards. And so when that shock happens, people would say, well, you know, I don't, I can't trust. I have to, I have to like dig into any bank I want to do business with to make, you know, see what their reserve ratios are to see how much fractions or bank lending they're doing, how much of this money is actually money. Uh, the part that's not money, how safe is, is it, tre- is it at least like treasuries or is it, you know, what is it? Um, and they can, they can go into that and, and analyze the risk. But generally the problem is that every time this happens it it build up over decades so if we go all the way back to the 1800s and kind of just go through these big like not not these like little bubbles but these like generational bubbles that build up mm. um what you generally see in common is you know the number of ious or claims expands for decade relative to the the base and that at point becomes it becomes so like if it's if it's let collapse there it becomes so like problematic that no politician is incentivized in the near term to let that happen under their watch. Right. And if even if the funny thing is, even if they just tried to hold the line, let's say it's Ron Paul and he's like, I'm not going to do it. 
Well, yeah. there's a good chance you're getting voted out and the next uh, uh, person's going to do it. So the the political um, kind of calculations or, or, or just kind of the branching decision trees that happen in those moments tends to be very incentivized to always increase the, the base money, or at least eventually. Like even during the Great Depression, I mean, for years they didn't. And it kind of was just more and more banks are failing. Something like a third of all M2 was destroyed. Um, right. And eventually they were like, all right, we just got to print the money. Like it's just, it, it you, you can, you know, 2008, they just did it right away. Whereas, um, you know, back then they waited for a few years, but either way, it's like the, it kind of keeps moving towards eventually just printing the money. Yeah. I mean, but then that goes back to in a free market, do you have fractional reserve banking? Uh, if Because it seems like just as flawed human beings and, and flawed politicians with ulterior motives, you know, we as customers, you know, they want the highest interest rate. We want the cheapest loans. And if fractional reserve banking provides that, it seems like we as flawed human beings will, will choose that over and over and over again. I think uh, you know a general way that that's argued is um, that if if the customers are opting for that, they at least have to be told what's happening. Whereas I think yeah. in the current, yeah. they, yeah. they've done. I, I've seen surveys and polls and stuff that show most people don't actually understand how fractions or banking works. They yeah. don't understand that the bank does not have most of their money there. Uh, you know, they they might know roughly that some of it's lent out, but they don't. They might not realize that like ninety five percent of it is lent out, um, and that only like five percent of it's backed by actual. Yes some definition of an actual dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it. if you go back to the 1800s during the free banking era, for example, there are some, yeah. there are some countries that managed it better than others, Sweden, Canada. The United States, because of our state structure, we had a, we, it was like, um, you know, every state had their own rules for like what, you know, like so Massachusetts would say, I don't know, go run the bank however you want. Whereas like Louisiana had actually like really strict, like they were like, no, you have to have like 30% banknote backing by gold and X, Y, Z and you know, all these different things. And so mm-hmm. some jurisdictions were a little bit um, tighter and, and taken more seriously than others. Um, but then, I, you know, even if you were in a state that it didn't have requirements, if you, if there was like a bank that like got through multiple crises and, you know, advertised that they're, you know, the highest reserve, you know, um, percentage in the industry and it, yeah, you know, that, that reputation then, yeah then they reputation and then maybe they, they can you know there's obviously regulations one tool but then there's other banks can self-regulate um up to a point and i think i think a challenge is just that the way it works is your fractional reserve banking is ultimately double counting you're making promises that are probability based so it's 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 like you know you're assuming that no more than x percent of your deposit base is going to want at a it's like an insurance time. company too. Insurance, same thing. Yeah, that if yeah, if you were to have that, then that's why they have clauses against like acts of God. They would call it it's something like it's so catastrophic that it's just outside of their risk scope. And right. that's and and that's how banks operate. Where you know, the, and that's where the say the Austrians would argue that it, in order to do it kind of like on the proper, you'd have to do duration matching, so that there would be more the more. Um, customer differentiation between time deposits and demand deposits right now demand deposits are the overwhelmingly large amount whereas uh you know time deposits like certificates of deposit are a much smaller segment of the deposit base right. whereas and so you're kind of implicitly saying you can pull your cash out whenever even though we're actually holding almost all of it in illiquid or less liquid assets of longer duration 
um, the kind of the formal full reserve approach would say lending still happens, but that your deposits have to be duration matched to the lending you're giving out. So if you're making two-year loans, that should be based on deposits that have a two-year lockup. Um, and that way money's not, you know, the person doesn't think it's all theirs any time while at the same time it's already lent out. Yeah, I think the the key there for me is just you've got to disclose exactly what you're doing to the customer and to the depositor. And if you disclose that and they, they choose to continue to bank with you, even though you don't have that uh, that time relationship in sync with the asset side and the, and the liability side of your balance sheet, if they choose to continue to move forward because you're giving them a higher interest rate because they're taking more risk, an example, uh, then they should have the ability to do that. And then you just let the market decide. And if all those businesses, if they go bust because of you know some event, then, then they go bust. And then people say, hey, that was not a good idea in the future. Uh, I'm going to be more prudent with my money. I'm going to teach my kids to do the same thing and seek out these banks to where the asset side and liability side of their balance sheet is more in sync from a standpoint of, of time. That was one of the things that I didn't like about Silicon Valley Bank and uh, and First Republic and Signature and whatnot is, uh, you know, they, they said, oh, well, they're letting them fail. That means that everyone's going over to JP Morgan and they're becoming bigger. And I agree that that's not a good thing. You want a lot of, of banks, but if they come in and bail out, then there's no motivation for banks to get better. And there's no motivation for depositors to seek out banks that operate in a more full reserve fashion. You know, you've got to have that failure sometimes to open up people's eyes and then change the way the free market operates. Well, and the other criticism is that so far, fours or banks haven't really been able allowed to operate. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, because the the group of banks is what lets you into the banking system. Yeah. And yeah. if you do something that they your competitors don't like, you don't get in. You don't get into the club. Right. And so there was the narrow bank that, that they just said, we just want to be a fours or a thin bank. They They said no. Um, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, custodia bank. They said, we want to have, you know, all of our demand deposits backed up by reserves, um, 108%. Um, and you know, for other reasons they were told no. Um, so there are, there have been attempts that say, Hey, we want to give the option to people. Cause right now, if you look around and say, what bank can I, you know, would my demand deposits be entirely backed by cash? And the answer I mm -hmm. think is none, or at least like right. none, none that seem to be advertising that as something that they offer. Or maybe and, just offshore. I mean, that Schiff had a yeah. bank like that, and they put them out of business. Yeah, and ironically, I mean, probably some of these stable coins are the closest thing you get, where where you know they're actually pretty heavily backed by things like bank cash and T bills, right? They're actually ironically, but then they're in their own regulatory gray zone and challenges like that. Um, and you know, one example we saw recently is these real estate funds that um, uh, cut off redemptions, where they say, "Hey, I know you thought you'd be able to get your money out, but..." It's stuck in a liquid stuff, so you can't. Now, those contracts would generally have a clause in them saying that this is an option that they have. And but of course, the key difference is you don't keep your payroll in them, right? You right. you don't keep money that if if you don't get that month, you know, if you're if you're if your redemptions are gated, that you're just you're bankrupt now. Um, and so one of the challenges that you know for a lot of companies or businesses um, or just people that have you know just money needs that they there, there's no option for them to have their demand deposits backed up by actual cash, or, or at least like there's very limited options out there. Uh, you have to go to weird corners of the market to get them. Uh, they get Other than just cash. 
yeah. put into the cash, which is harder, which is in the modern era, hard to run a business. Imagine you're running, right. you know, you have, you have like remote employees and stuff. Right. And so it's like, it's like you have to use a leveraged bond fund as your payroll, which is awkward, but that's, that's kind of the environment we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the Fed's balance sheet, how it does impact M2 and how it doesn't impact M2. Uh, let and let's look at this. And the reason I want to focus on this for most people is because if you assume that the Fed's balance sheet going up is always going to increase M2, the amount of currency units chasing goods and services, it's going to lead you to some inaccurate conclusions. Uh, one, you know, the GFC that we talked about, you would assume that we would have had hyperinflation instead of uh, anti deflation, which I think is a great way to say it. Same thing for the 1930s. You know, you would have assumed, oh my gosh, look at the Fed's balance sheet. Look at what they're doing. We're going to have Weimar Germany. Uh, when in actuality, you still had consumer prices going down, although they didn't go down as far as they otherwise would have, right? If they wouldn't have done anything. Uh, but then, but then uh, in 2020, you know, you were right to assume that the Fed's balance sheet actually did have an impact on the amount of currency units that were chasing goods and services. So I think people need to understand that back-end plumbing so they can differentiate between the two types of, of quote-unquote, QE or, uh, you know, the two differences and when the Fed balance sheet expands or contracts. So in, in your view, why did, why did uh, M2 increase as a result of 2020? So two reasons. One was because some of the QE was from non-bank entities. Uh, and two, because it was combined with unusually large fiscal spending. So a lot of, basically the government spent a lot of money in the economy while, while almost simultaneously issuing a ton of treasuries. And if there was no QE, um, that tr those treasuries, that issuance would suck money from somewhere. And then as they spend it, it would, it would go back into the economy. And so you wouldn't really have a lot of money creation. It would have been the same thing if there was no deficit spending. Yes. Because if okay. the Fed, if the Fed is doing QE, let's say, uh, and and they're but let's just assume for a moment they're buying exclusively from non-bank entities via the primary dealers, then correct me if I'm wrong, but even if there is no deficit spending, that's still going to increase M two. Yeah, that's why my first caveat there was if yeah. you're doing QE from non-banks. So even without a deficit, yeah. if you're just doing QE from non-banks, the thing is, I think in most contexts that would not be super inflationary because you know. For, for any, um, you know, if you're just recipient, uh, you know, you're not getting stimulus checks, you're not getting PPP loans that's turned into grants, you're not increasing your net worth, you're a financial institution or you're, you're some sort of investor and you're giving away like a bond or, you know, security and you're getting cash right. for it. Um, so M2 is going up uh, in that context, um, but generally not super rapidly and generally not in a very price inflationary way. Because of low velocity. So let me explain that real quick, Lynn, because that, I think that's such a key component. That's such a key factor. So what she's saying, guys, is let's assume that you have $100,000 in savings. Or excuse me, let's say you have $100,000 worth of treasuries on, on your balance sheet. It, it's, it's, it's a cash equivalent, but it's just sitting there as an asset. Let's say that you sell that. And because you want the $100,000 in your savings account instead of the, the, the treasuries, Okay, well, if that money stays in your savings account, it although you it does increase M two, 
it's not out there chasing hamburgers and, and groceries and rent and cars and whatnot, because it's just kind of trading one cash equivalent in your savings being T-bills for another cash equivalent, which is just uh, the, the cash in the savings account. So I think that's the point you're trying to make there, isn't it, Lynn? And that's where I kind of try to differentiate between high velocity money, low velocity money, and then also the aggregate balance sheet of the non-bank entities. Because in that uh, example, you know, yes, the Fed increased M2, but it didn't change the assets as far as an aggregate total on the balance sheet of the non-banks. Yeah, it, it increased its own assets. It increased both its assets and its liabilities, so not its own equity as a central bank. And then other other entities also stay the same. Uh, when we talk about vo velocity, is tricky because you can have velocity of different different types for different markets. So, for example, uh, one thing that QE can do is increase velocity on asset purchases. Right. So, if you buy, if you create reserves and buy existing securities from a non-bank, and they now have more money in their account. And they say, well, what are we going to buy with our more money? We're going to go out and buy some sort of assets. Maybe we go out and buy um, bonds. Maybe we go out and buy stocks. We're going to probably go buy something. So you're 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 kind of in potentially likely leading to asset price inflation in the sense that you're you're increasing liquidity for entities that are likely to buy assets if they have more liquidity, or at least yeah. replace the assets that they sold to the Fed. Um, yeah, where I always where, where I always struggle with that is that I, I think about an, an individual that's that has those treasuries right and let's say they want to buy stocks they're going to sell those treasuries and buy stocks regardless of whether or not they're selling to the fed or they're selling to another non-bank entity or jp morgan right and so i i don't that's where i kind of struggle with that i, I get it that there's more m2 but I don't know that it directly impacts stock prices, as an example, because it assumes that there are no other buyers. And if that individual wanted to trade the, the treasuries for stocks, they couldn't do it unless the Fed was buying. Yeah, I think, I mean, and that showed up, for example, in March 2020. Uh, yeah, where right, if right. you tried to sell an off the run treasury, you actually, it, it, it kind of went like no bid at one point. Right. Uh, you'd see that during the guilt um, crisis last year. You'd see it during the 2019 repo spike. So there are times of tight liquidity where it actually is hard to sell what should otherwise be a liquid asset. Um, and other than that, it's generally just replacement. So, you know, if the Fed says, hey, we're going to we're going to buy treasuries and, you know, treasuries flow to them with a, with a mild markup, you know, middlemen taking their their cut along the way. It just basically then those re those balance sheets go out, refill more of what they probably already had. Um, and so it, you're instead of, you know, if the treasury was issuing a lot of treasuries and yep. they were kind of filling up, they were getting stuck all these, on all these like different entities, balance sheets, they're all getting kind of tight on liquidity because they're stuffed full of treasuries. Um, instead of more, you know, incoming supply running into a tight liquidity environment and potentially causing one of those moments instead, you know, that it kind of all the passengers get off the train. Uh, you know, they empty out of those into the fed with the new yep. reserves. And then those can now re reabsorb the other incoming supply yeah you've got that release yeah. valve yeah hey guys i want to remind you to check out rebel capitalist pro this is the incredible online investment forum that i have with investment 
experts Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Let's also discuss too how, let's just forget the Fed for a moment, forget QE, and let's just talk about how deficit spending uh, can create additional M2 money supplies. So I, I uh, at mentioned to you on a tweet the other day uh, that I thought you'd find interesting about uh, World War II in the 1940s, because I know you've done so much research there. And I, I was reading a, a summary of 1945 from the Federal Reserve themselves, and they talked about all of this deficit spending that the government did between 1940, I think maybe 1944, 1945, uh, to, to fund the war. And they broke down the numbers and they they showed how, I think it was $382 billion total, something like that. But they showed the percentage that was purchased by banks and then purchased by non-banks. And they made the point to say that all of the treasuries that were purchased by the banking sector actually added to M2 money supply. And so even if you exclude the Fed, if the banks are buying or lending to a non-bank, which would be the government, uh, you are going to see an increase in M2. Yes, that's true. And that uh, you have to start from a position of generally pretty high uh, liquidity or reserves because, you know, if they're already running at, say, only 3% of deposits are backed up by cash and then they want to absorb billions and billions of new treasuries or today be trillions, uh, that'd be very hard for them to do while still being able to be liquid enough. But if they start from a period of like um, high high reserves or plenty of liquidity and they absorb that treasury issuance, that is directly accretive uh, to M2 because those that money is being put into the economy and it's not coming out from someone else's account. Instead, it, it's the the money multiplier itself is increasing, um, and and so you're getting that M2 increase. And so in the in the 1940s case, uh, that was like the highest ever ratio of treasuries held by banks. Like if you look at at banks, like the percentage of their assets that are in treasuries, the yeah. 40s or 50s. I think, I don't know exactly where it peaked, but that period was the highest like ever. Um, and because they were they were the principal finances of the war, and you know the Fed 10x their balance their like uh, government treasury holdings between 1942 and 45. Uh, you also had you know the public was buying war bonds stuff like that. So they kind of they kind of put the the treasuries in whatever pockets of the balance sheet they could find. Uh, but banks were a giant piece of that. And if you looked at um, what how England did it, um, you know the, I, I've looked into some of the war financing that happened uh, for them and and the. For them, the World War One is interesting because they kind of, you know, they're the global reserve currency at the time, and they they said, okay, we're going to enter this this war because so World War One at the time was not expected to be some big. It was going to be in any other regional conflict, right? It's going to so, be like a like a one month deal. 
Yeah, it's supposed to be small. And it's like, you know, just like today with America and China, they're so intertwined. Germany and UK were so intertwined, even though they were kind of like, the, you know, Germany was the rising power. They had tensions, but they were so um, intertwined in terms of business and trade and, and finance and stuff. Like they were like, oh, this this can't possibly be a serious war. Right. Um, and so when the UK decided to enter the war, um, they they wanted to issue an amount of bonds that was equal to like 100% of GDP. Like it was like a, it was like a huge amount of bonds. And they said, hey, we're going to issue all these bonds to go fund the war. And only something like a third of the bonds were were basically supplied. Uh, that there basically was insufficient demand for those bonds. So it came in way below expectations, even though those bonds had a higher interest rate than their normal government bonds. And so they had a dilemma. They basically, if they if they let that be known that that happened, um, they're probably not going to be able to enter the war and the price of those bonds is not going to do well and they're going to have a big problem. And mm-hmm. so instead, they they basically cheated. They had two high officials at, at the Bank of England borrow they they went they went they borrowed money from the bank of england bought the remaining two-thirds of the bonds like mm-hmm. under their name with with uh central bank credit and so it was, it was kind of this middle way of getting around the legality of of you know deficit financing like monetization but they basically monetized the bond issuance and so that's that's part of why they got such a big spike in overall currency because they just they just created essentially they created new base money to finance a large portion of what they spent on the war and so yeah, yeah you, you get that just you, you when you have moments like that that's where you can get a huge increase in the money supply and a huge increase in actual price inflation because that money's then you know they're giving it to soldier salaries they're buying commodities with it they're they're going to yeah, manufacture yeah. and saying hey stop making cars start making tanks we're going to buy uh-huh. them all so that cars become expensive and metal becomes expensive and there's just more there's more pounds out there, dollars out there chasing, you know, goods. Fewer goods. Fewer yeah. goods. Because well, fewer, yeah. Yeah. As far as from a consumer standpoint, yeah. you know. It's interesting to go over that story and and juxtapose it to the United States with World War Two because a, such a large uh, amount of those treasuries were absorbed by the general public. I wish I had it right in front of me. I think it was like Forty percent of the money they they spent on the war came from taxes, uh, additional taxes, and then between the other sixty percent, you know, uh, I forgot what it was. Let's say thirty percent was uh, was bond issuance that was purchased by the general public, those war bonds, and then the other thirty percent was from banks, which obviously, you know, like we said, impacts them too. So it seems like they had an easier time of it than Britain in World War One. Yeah, it was overall more diversified. And that's why, despite the fact that the U.S. had very high inflation during the 40s, it was not nearly as bad as what you saw in, in much of Europe, especially on the losing side, of course, but even on the winning side. In in World War One or World War II? Uh, generally both. Um, both of them experienced inflation that was generally even higher than what the U.S. experienced in the 1940s. We also experienced oh, okay. a, We had an inflation spike during World War One as well. Uh, we we didn't have to break our gold peg, um, mm-hmm. but we did have a um, big uptick in prices. That you know, prices spiked briefly, and then they there was like a brief period of deflation, but they yeah. stayed at like a much higher average plateau. So we had like a one time. Um, because it was just there literally was more money in the economy, even though it was it was just a le- little bit less backed by gold than it was before, but it the peg didn't break or anything. 
Um, so prices were higher. And that was the state we were in roughly until we, we ran into the Great Depression. Yeah. Let's go back and explain to people who are listening why when the government deficit spends, if a non-bank entity is buying the debt, how it does not increase M2. And if a bank buys it, it does increase M2. Because I think, you know, you and I talk pretty fast because we understand that back in plumbing, but I think that's kind of going over people's heads. I think it's a, a crucial component here because I, what I really want to drive home to people is that if a, a bank is buying or lending to a non-bank, uh, even the government, going to increase M2 and then, and then vice versa. So uh, just to be clear, guys, when a, let's say the treasury issues uh, a, a billion dollars of the treasuries, and that's purchased by non-bank entities, just the average Joe and Jane. So what that's doing is that's drawing down M2 to begin with because they have to pay for those treasuries. So then what happens is the bank reserves go into the TGA, then the TGA spends uh, those, you know, the say the bank reserves, those go back onto the balance sheet of the commercial banking system, and then M2 is replenished. So you have an initial drawdown in M2, and then you have an increase in M2 when the money is spent by the treasury uh, of the exact same amount. So on net balance, there's no change. But when you have a bank that buys that, so now, like what Lynn was saying, there's no initial drawdown in M2 because most likely a bank is going to use bank reserves that are a liability of the Fed. So that is not included in M2. So you have M2 stay the same, but then when the treasury spends it, it increases on net balance. And that's the difference because the initial drawdown or the initial payment, if it's a non-bank, draws down M2, where the initial payment from a bank does not. Can you explain it any any easier than that, Lynn? <laughs> I think that was a good way to do it. I think one, we can add an example. It's just that, um, sorry, I have lawnmowers outside. I don't know no if you hear it on the mic, but... Um, if let's say the government wanted to send me a thousand dollar stimulus check, um, now if you know when they issue the treasuries, if you if you buy a thousand dollars of treasuries, then basically my my bank account goes up by a thousand, uh, my my deposits and your deposits go down by a thousand, but you get the treasury, uh, and so the actual money supply didn't change, uh, and the only thing changed is that now there's there's more treasuries outstanding, um, so that's an example of it not you know, not changing. On the other hand, if they, if the government sends me a thousand dollar stimulus check and instead of you buying the treasury, if one of our banks um, buys the treasury, what they're basically doing is they're leveraging themselves up a, a little bit more. Um, you know, that, that you know, the money multiplier, like different ways to look at it. Um, the, the divide, you know, that, that's a, a number that's fluctuated significantly over the decades uh, is basically how much M2 is the system compared to the monetary base or reserves or however you want to measure it. Um, they're just levering themselves up more. So uh, I'm getting more money. You still have the same amount of money. And so there's, there's now there's more money on net in the, in the system. Yeah. 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 Very well said. So what do you think about, uh, I, I don't know if you've given this any thought, but you know, RFK came out the other day and said, it was, he was very, very vague, but he said he was considering, you know, if he's president, he's considering backing uh, T-bills and the dollar. I'm not quite sure how that would work, but T-bills and the dollar, like a 1% a Bitcoin or Bitcoin gold, silver kind of uh, combination. And 
you know, I, I applaud him for even acknowledging uh, the monetary system and inflation and whatnot. But I got to thinking about that. I'm like, I don't know how that would work uh, because, you know, if you're saying, all right, we're going to peg the, the, the dollar to Bitcoin at a 1% backing at, let's just say, uh, now all of a sudden the dollar is worth uh, one thirty thousandth, if I'm saying that correctly, of a Bitcoin, assuming we're, we're attaching it to a $30,000 price, right? Um, isn't that just going to lead to an arbitrage opportunity where the outstanding Bitcoin or in other countries, you know, they're going to slightly bid up the price, but no one's going to buy that because they could always just buy from the, the Fed or the Treasury. And then it's just going to immediately drain the reserves that the treasury had, regardless of whether it was platinum, gold, silver, Bitcoin. Um, how are you, how are you seeing that? Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't look at the wording of the initial announcement, but I saw people. It's very, it. it's, it's very vague. They just say backing. They don't say if that's redeemable. They don't, they yeah. don't give any details. Yeah. That's the thing. Cause there's a difference between reserve accumulation and actual backing. So reserve accumulation would basically say, okay, our Federal Reserve is going to be, uh, and Treasury, actually more specifically, is going to be allowed to and even tasked with uh, increasing its hard assets, right? So you say, okay, instead of just holding our 8,000, supposed 8,000 tons of gold flat, uh, we want to go out and buy more. And, you know, we want to add a certain percentage of Bitcoin to that mix as well, so that there's basically there's more reserves in the system. That That's one statement. Um, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an arguably a reasonable thing to do. I mean, it's probably... It's probably dollar negative while it happens, um, but then they'd have more ammo if they should ever want to defend the dollar. That's just generally how emerging markets manage their exchange rate is they either, one of the things they do is expand reserves or contract reserves. Um, so that's an option. Now, if you actually wanted to back it in terms of rede uh, redeemability, the challenge is that you have to have quite a lot of it. Um, yeah. so the, way, the way this yeah. would work on, a, on the gold standard, for example, is that you might you might have you know, 40% of your monetary base backed up by gold. And if, if there's too many redemptions happening, that's what you'd have to increase interest rates because you're, you're, you want to entice more gold to enter into your, or at least you want to stop the outflows and entice more existing gold to come back in for people that say, okay, I trust the system and I want to get that, I want to get that higher interest on that gold by depositing it. Um, and then if they're ever in a situation where they have more gold than they need, let's say they have 50% and their, their mandate's 40%, they can cut interest rates because they, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a little bit more redemptions happening, uh, but you can't really do that when you're talking about one percent, five percent. And the, the the longer term challenge goes back to our, our earlier point about fractions or banking and how these claims tend to proliferate faster than the underlying uh, base can. Right. Uh, and so when you have banks that are that are that are not fours or banks, so they're not doing duration matching, they're they're doing fractions or banking. They're generally increasing the total claims in the system more than gold's uh, increasing. And so as long as that's redeemable, you're probably going to get drained. If you look at, at the Bretton Woods system, it's interesting because, uh, you know, it was proposed in obviously 1944, but it wasn't fully implemented until the late 1950s. Uh, that's when like it was fully set up. The exchange rates were like, you know, um, were locked. All, all, yeah, all that all that stuff was like, yeah, it was kind of all planned for like that first like 15 years. And then it was like, OK, we're, we're going live. And if you look at uh, U.S. gold reserves, they just started dropping almost every single year like a stone. Yeah. As, you, as soon as you had that, until it, it just broke. It, then they said, we can't do this anymore. So a lot of people, when they look at the Bretton Woods system, they say the problem happened in 1971. It's like, well, no, no. It, it, 
the, the problem happened the second you went live with a system that didn't fundamentally make sense because you didn't constrain the number of IOUs, bank deposits. You didn't you didn't constrain the, the number of euro dollars. So you had fractional reserve banking built on fractional reserve banking. This was all proliferating. No reserve banking. Yeah. Reverse and all this was yeah, and all this all this is now redeemable for gold. And so people kept saying, well, I'll take the gold then. So it just you started rapidly draining gold while increasing M2 and increasing Euro dollars. And eventually the ratios got silly and and broke. Yeah, that that's why I, I did a video on this last night and I was just thinking about it out loud. And I like I, I love the idea. I, lo I love the concept. I love the fact that he's talking about it. You know, hats off to him because no other politicians are. But in reality, there there's almost a zero probability that that, that would work because to your point, it just immediately get drained, especially to one percent. Yeah, I think the the way to think about it long term is that if the number of claims are expanding faster than what they're redeemable before, that's inherently going to break eventually. It, it yeah. now then it becomes a question of when. I mean, if it's if you start from a sufficiently high percentage, and you're lucky and it's not tested very much, it can go for quite a long time. But if you start from a low percentage, uh, and if people want to test it more, then it's going to probably break pretty quickly, like it did, like Bretton Woods did. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let me go down my list, Lynn. While I'm doing that, why don't you tell people about your new book? I mean, this is very exciting. You've obviously done a ton of research on it, and uh, I, I'm really, really looking forward to it. So when is it coming out? Where can people get it? Uh, so I'm planning on launching it uh, in late August, um, uh, early September. Uh, we'll see the exact date, but around that time frame. And probably it'll first be available on Amazon, and then it'll spread from there uh, to, to different um, types of bookstores. What are you going to uh, call it? What's it about? Uh, so it's called Broken Money, um, and it's 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 kind of a two. There's two goals of it. One is that it walks. It, the main kind of question is why is our money system not working as well as we we think it probably should in the 21st century? Like why is our money? Yeah. Why why is inflation happening? Why are bank failures happening? How come? emerging market currency like if you're just trying to save money in an emerging market it's just harder everything's harder um and the, basically the the system's just kind of inherently unstable so it, it tries to answer the question why and to do that it basically says this is a lot of this is technology so let's start from the beginning of what money is and how to how new technologies have changed over time how we what we use as money and how we interact with money to see how we got to this point to see what about it might be unstable and then what what future technologies might be able to uh, give us a more robust system. So everything from shells to Bitcoin, it kind of covers that spectrum, but it does it in, I, I focus on a couple aspects that I don't really see other books focusing on, yeah. uh, which is a lot of it's that technology angle. Um, I also, obviously, you know, banking now seems basic, but the development of banking over time was a technology. It was an emergence of different ways to abstract money, to tra to send money long distances, different techniques that were used, even things like the invention of papyrus and the invention of paper, were literal technologies that then allowed for these these you know systems to develop over time. Yeah. Oh, you know, one thing that I got a couple minutes here. Maybe uh, people would uh, first and foremost, people really want to know your prediction or your base case for uh, consumer price inflation probably over the next six months, the next year. And then, um, just quickly, I, we've got this problem of the CBDCs because what you're saying with 
you know, the, the, the delta between base money and broad money, un, unfortunately, a CBDC solves that yeah, because, because broad money is base money and, and it's everything's on the Fed's balance sheet, so they can't go bust. So you de-risk the system at, at obviously the cost of Big Brother and, and everything else that we're con- rightfully concerned with of these CBDCs. So I guess why don't you start really quick with your base case for the next six months or year with inflation and then maybe give me your quick thoughts on a CBDC. So I think we're still in a disinflationary trend. Um, I think the key thing to watch, though, is what happens with energy. Uh, to the extent that we have a second inflation spike, um, I think there's a good chance it would be energy-driven or a combination of large deficits and energy pricing. Um, so right now, for example, U.S. Uh, shale production, um, even though the production's still high, the drilling is rolling over, and that tends to lead production by anywhere between like eight and 15 months. Uh, and we're something like eight months into that, um, you know, that rollover happening. And so I think basically we're going to see kind of a tightness in supply and we already might be seeing, you know, a tightness in, in price as well. I mean, the SPR is no longer drawing down, um, you know, shale, I think is just going to be a little bit less flexible oncoming supply source than it used to be. So, you know, I think we're, most categories, I think, are still going to be kind of like muted for the next six months. Um, but I do think we might be seeing early signs of, of energy uh, starting to tick up. And I, I don't know if that's going to go up and then flatline for a little bit. I, I you know, I am bullish on energy this decade. Um, but if I try not to do things like predict, you know, what's the price going to be six months from now, 12 months from now, that's partially depending on Fed actions, Treasury actions. Recession, depression. Yeah, recession. Yeah. Or so... Um, but I do think that that's, that's the variable to watch. I think a key thing I like to do is make sure I'm asking the right questions or looking at the right thing so that even if I might not have an answer yet, I know what I'm looking for that might start to solidify me towards an answer one way or another. And so for mm-hmm. me, I think energy is one of the key things I'm watching. In addition to just what's, ha- what's happening with the treasury, uh, like the deficits and how those are being financed over time and what happens when, for example, the reverse repo is largely uh, drained where would the next source of liquidity come from? And you could get in an environment where they have to redo QE, even if there's an above average you know, inflation number, kind of like how you see in Japan right now, inflation is above their target, still doing QE. Um, I think we eventually probably get to that in the US. It's just not, it's not very close. Um, the, the longer term question about CBDCs, I mean, so the good news so far is that countries that have tried them, like Nigeria, have not had great success. Um, like they launched their e-Naira, and after like 12 months, it had like 1% adoption, if that. Um, like more, more Nigerians were using Bitcoin and stablecoins than were using the e-Naira, uh, which is like by like an order of magnitude. Um, and so that was promising. Um, but I do think that some jurisdictions like China will be more probably successful with it, unfortunately. Um, the U.S. is a tricky one because we have a slightly more decentralized system in the sense that our Federal Reserve is kind of that hybrid public-private setup. And banks generally don't want to be um, intermediated. And so, and and Congress is pretty split on this issue, right? I mean, a lot of Republicans, I think, would, would, they're they're making anti-CBDC kind of, some of them are making it part of their campaign. Uh, The problem is they don't even know what it is. Those politicians, they're they're just complete idiots. I mean, they don't even know what a CBDC is. They 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 wouldn't even know what if it hit them in the head. I think a lot of them don't, but I think that when push comes to shove, if they do try to make a big change to the base money, how the base money works, 
and you have to get something through Congress, uh, I don't think we should take it as for granted that it will go through. I mean, it's possible that it will. Uh, you know, when we think of, you know, a lot of people, when they think of big monetary changes, they think of FDR. And what we have to remember is that FDR had like a supermajority in Congress. That was like a huge wave that came in. Um, and and it's it's one of the most concentrated American politics ever was. Um, and they were able to do big, big changes. Um, and so we're not really in that environment today. If anything, we're, we're kind of known for our record polarization for the past decade or more. Um, and so I think it'll be kind of this like slower battle to see what's there. And I think in the meantime, things like Fed now, yeah. um, they, they give basically the Fed part of what they want from a CBDC without, right. um, without breaking the bank lending model. Right, so they don't want to impair credit, and, and without going through Congress, because yeah. the, the 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 deposits still aren't on the Fed's balance sheet. The retail deposits still aren't on the Fed's balance sheet. Yeah, so that that for them is like the low hanging fruit because they could just do it unilaterally. It's a tech upgrade, yeah, right. um, and what but what they do get from it is a little bit more fine tuned surveillability and controllability, um, rather than just seeing these large batching uh, transactions. So I, I think that they might be content with that for a while. Unless there's, you know, window in Congress that might make a full-on CBDC more more likely to materialize. Yeah, I think my my concerns there, the way I see it playing out, is, you know, if I'm the Fed, if, if I'm a central planner and I want a CBDC, I'm not going to announce it. I'm not going to say, "Hey guys, we've got this new Fed coin," because I know that it's got a lot of negative PR. I'm just going to roll out the the features. You know, I'm going to say, "Hey, you know, check this out. Now you can go ahead and." transfer money anywhere in the world free of charge instantly. There's uh settlement 365, 24-7, yada, yada, yada. And then people, oh, well, man, I love that. I love that. I love that. And just roll out these features, keep rolling them out. And then if we do have a, a crisis, especially in the banking system, you know, the, the obvious solution is, well, okay, we don't want the depositors to take a haircut. We've got the FDIC with 180 billion or something like that. We've got deposits at 18 billion or a trillion, excuse me. So the easy solution is just to move everyone to the Fed's balance sheet. No one has to take a haircut. We never have to worry about the banking system being fragile again. And oh, by the way, uh, you know, the Fed's happy to pay you the same interest rate they're paying Jamie Dimon. Uh, because right now, let's say you get 1% with JP Morgan, but then they're paying JP Morgan 5%. You know, people see that as unfair. So they look over, well, you know, why would I not move my deposit liabilities from Wells Fargo over to the Fed, especially in a crisis situation. And there, that's when they've kind of sealed the deal, so to speak. Yeah, and I do. Th so right now, generally, when you see um, CBDCs being launched in some of these countries, they do market it as increasing financial inclusion, uh, faster payments. You know, they, they're always obviously focusing on the upsides for the consumer rather than all the downsides like the surveillance, the control, things like that. Um, and so I do think that they would have probably a similar approach should they should they launch that. Um, I think the challenge is that, you know, when you're making the claim or when they're making the claim, hey, you can get the interest that JP Morgan gets. You have to remember that bank lobbyists are, are quite a big, you know, force in, you know, who they pay in terms of politicians and stuff like that, which, again, makes it hard to get these more fundamental changes uh, through Congress. Right. I so think they'll just be originators, Lynn. I just think they'll be loan originators, just kind of like with Fannie and Freddie. You know, if Wells Fargo issues a, a mortgage, they're pocketing a spread, but then they're selling it to Fannie and Freddie. They're basically getting a fee, like a finder's fee almost. And if that's where they're making the majority of their profit, along with trading, 
you know, so they, the, the, basically what I see is the Fed gives them kind of a checklist, like Fannie and Freddie, that the, that the borrower has to meet this requirement, this requirement, this requirement, this requirement. And then they go ahead and do that regardless of the loan. And then they just sell the loan to the, the Fed. It goes onto their balance sheet and the Fed pays them a spread, which would be the upfront profit that they would have made by keeping the loan on their books to begin with. That's kind of how I see it playing out. Yeah. And I think that's a reasonable outcome. I mean, like a reasonable uh, probability assessment to have. Um, I, I, you know, the challenge, you still have to get through legislation for that type yeah, of right. change. Right. Uh, so it's hard to predict the timing of that. I think even Jerome Powell's the record of not being a fan of CBDCs, uh, Neil Kashkari. I mean, obviously these things can change, but when you have officials like that, be skeptical of it. When you see some percentage of politicians make it an active part of their thing, you know, when it, when push comes to shove, the question is, can it get through like a filibuster or can it get even half the votes? And it's, it's unclear to me. Um, uh, but it's something that I, I monitor and I, you know, I have a chapter in my bo upcoming book on that where I talk about, you know, it's kind of a fork in the road here where money's clearly going more digital. Yep. And the question is, uh, you know, is, is the proliferation of open source money like Bitcoin going to be more successful or is the proliferation of closed source digital money going to be more, uh, uh, successful? Like, you know, the, the CBDCs or highly controlled stable coins, things like that. Um, versus the the open source, so I, I think that's that's kind of the I think direction things are going to trend to over the next decade. Do you have another five minutes? Sure. How let's assume that we have a CBDC tomorrow. How would you, Lynn Alden, navigate that, or or how would you suggest, assuming that the the person listening right now wants the central planners to have as little information on what they buy in order to give them a social score, how do they, like, what strategies do they use? Because I've thought about this on a whiteboard, and unfortunately the conclusion that I come to is you're, you're gonna have to, a, a part of your finances is gonna have to live within this unified ledger, let's say, or within this ecosystem, because how are you gonna, you know, how is your employer gonna pay you? Uh, and if you wanted to exclusively use Bitcoin or gold, okay, well then you'd have to find an employer that's willing to pay you in that. Then you, then you, uh, need to find producers of goods and services for everything you need that are willing to accept that as a, uh, a form of payment. And although that may be there in the future, it's definitely not there right now. So how, how do you say, like, what would you do as far as a strategy? What would you suggest for the average person out there, assuming we got a CBDC tomorrow? So I think for one, I would not really hold much more in it than I have to for like right. liquidity purposes, uh, yep. which is kind of similar to how I do it now. I would just probably be tighter on that um, number because that I already can, it's like in some ways that money is already not yours. You're, you're like, uh, you know, you're the, the bank owes your liability. Um, it'd be like even more along those lines where like, you know, your access to it's always kind of in question. Yeah, right, uh, right. So I, in some ways I'd operate similar to how I am now. Now the question is, you can have different scenarios. You can have a CBDC that's not at first heavily used differently than how it is now. So maybe they're not blocking any transactions. Maybe they're not doing, you know, quotas or what, you know, whatever the case may be. And so it seems like business is normal. So behavior does not change much. Um, I, I think generally when you do start get, if you do start getting things like, Hey, you know, you can only buy one pound of beef per week and you've already exceeded your quota. And so, uh, you're going to be throttled back on that type of purchase for the next week. 
Uh, if you do start seeing things like that, I think that's where you could, you know, you th right. There's already, for example, right now, um, there's like the beef initiative where they they link like you know, grass-fed cow like small farms uh, with buyers, and they have Bitcoin as one of the payment options. And so the kind of the their whole thing is like know your rancher, um, establish you know connections with the people you buy food from, uh, so that there's there's just fewer intermediaries. And so, for example, in that environment, you can say, hey, I my my CBDC, I can't buy beef, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and actually use this Bitcoin uh, to buy beef service uh, as an option. And now, obviously, then the federal government could say, well, you know, you're not allowed to accept Bitcoin as payment, but that's another- Or buy Bitcoin or buy gold. Or, or buy, yeah. That's a whole other legislative thing that right. they have to go through. So the whole point right. is make it hard for them, right? Um, and then even if they say it's illegal, it's like, well- some people are using it anyway, so it's like you know, kind of like civil disobedience. And then the question becomes, how how severe are the consequences? I mean, right now in Europe, I mean, in France, I think it is, businesses are not allowed to um, accept more than like a thousand euros in cash. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to enforce, um, but it's 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 you know, there's a stick there, so if you get caught doing it, you could be in trouble. Um, and so that's, you know, the average person is probably not being heavily impacted by that because most people are not super concerned about privacy, um, that even if they are aware of this being tracked, their, their actual purchases are not being blocked, really. I think when people actually get blocked is when they change their behavior pretty uh, substantially. So if, if someone says, you can't buy this, you can't buy this, they, they're looking to say, well, what, what technology could I use that would allow me to buy this? Which then the government's now doing whack-a-mole. Their, their job is now much harder Whereas if it's just in the system, they can just kind of do whatever they want. You know, things can just kind of happen to you. Uh, whereas if you're using money that's inherently more resistant or more peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, the onus is on the government. And the reason banks are so easy to control is because there's not that many of them. I mean, it's easy. If the government tells, you know, all 4,000 banks, you can't send money to this country, you know, at that day, just all money to that country stops, right? They all obey because, of course, they have to. Uh, whereas... Now that now that open source money is an option, the challenge is that you'd have to enforce that on the individual level too. You'd have to say it's illegal for any citizen to send money to that country, which the, the number of enforcement points go up from 4,000 to 330 million, right? And of course, it's, you know, if only a small percentage of people are doing it, it's easy to track them down. Um, but if it was something more benign, like buying beef and people are doing it, it becomes increasingly unpopular to try to enforce uh, yeah, I think that's over time. I think in the short term, people have to acknowledge the fact that they there's no way they're going to be able to buy the majority of their goods and services outside of that system. Uh, oh, well, let me take that back. There's no way they'll be able to buy the majority of their goods and services using Bitcoin or gold. Now, I do think that they could do it using cash. So, uh, and, and now will they ban cash? I, I don't know. That That's another you know, rabbit hole we could go down. But assuming that they don't for a moment, they don't uh, ban the on-ramps and off-ramps and all that stuff. I think what I would do is, uh, you know, to your point, I'd have to have a bank account at the Fed. I mean, I, if that's the only option, you got to have a bank account. And then I would make my money depositing into that. Then as, I would leave as little in there as possible. And then what I would do only, I'd only make payments that I couldn't use with Bitcoin gold cash. And then I would take the balance and I would put it into gold and or Bitcoin silver. And then I would hold that as kind of the, the store of value. And then when I needed to make transactions, I would try to take that 
gold or Bitcoin, turn it into cash, and then use cash for whatever payments I needed to make from vendors that didn't yet accept gold or Bitcoin. And then I would do that until a time where the uh, ecosystem or the infrastructure would build to a point where I'd be able to use Bitcoin or gold for a greater percentage of my overall transactions. Yeah, and, and it will be a spectrum because, so for example, now there are power users that are able to minimize their bank usage and, and live you know, almost exclusively off Bitcoin. But it's obviously very, very hard uh, compared to... Yeah, you'd have to live like the Amish. That's that's the example I always use. <laughs> they they have to use various. Yeah, there's like things like bit bit refill and and stuff like that that they services they can use. And I think the key thing is that in the specific areas they get blocked, that's where you're likely to see the fastest proliferation of merchant acceptance uh, for non traditional types of payments because they're the industries that are most impacted. Like let's say there's a beef quota, for example. Uh, well, the the rate of selling beef in non you know, CBDC terms is probably going to increase a lot uh, unless, right. again, unless they can pass separate legislation to try to make that illegal uh, because they're the businesses that literally if they if they don't accept those payments, they're, um, you know, let's say they're only doing physical cash. Uh, well, then they can't ship nationwide uh, up to uh, beyond a certain point. Whereas if they if they can accept Bitcoin, they can say, well, I'll send you half a cow um, and they can still do that. And so they have a faster incentive Whereas if you, if you're in an industry that's that's not impacted, if you're if you're just you know, if you're selling solar panels, maybe you're not impacted, and so you're not you're not going to be probably one of the early adopters to want to move over to these non CBDC payment. Right, methods. right, right. Impacted by the climate score, the social score. Yeah, whatever the case may be, and I think you know the challenge is that you know we've seen BlackRock even kind of walk back the ESG stuff a little bit. The brand got yeah. tarn- I think the brand got tarnished enough. Yeah, and I think I, I I think we'll see a similar thing with CBDCs, uh, or at least I hope, or at least I, well, I think it's already tarnished. I think the CBDC yeah. brand is it, it's one of the most toxic brands. Yep. It's as toxic as the World Economic Forum right now. Yeah, and I think that's that can that's useful because that can slow them down and that can make legislation harder to pass. Uh, and that can it's just I think the best people can do is just kind of gum up the works, make you know don't make it easy for them. Yeah, there you go. All right, Lynn. So please remind everyone where they can go to find out more about what you do, the the, the blogs that you have. It's awesome. And uh, the book. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, I'm at lynnalden.com. People can check out my work there, uh, both free articles and uh, a research service. And then uh, the book will be out uh, a little over a month from now, like four to six weeks, late August, um, probably. Um, and so people can check that out. I'll have links to it on my website and you'll be able to find it on Amazon and eventually elsewhere. And it's called Broken Money. Is that correct? Broken Money. Yes. Broken Money by Lynn Alden. Okay. We've got to look out for that guys. That's going to be awesome. All right, Lynn, thanks for your time. Can't wait to do it again. Yep. Thanks for having me.